When a horse flips its palate, it's usually a quick surgical procedure and that's that. Or is it? We'll discuss. Plus, does a horse know when he or she wins a race? Plus, does a horse know when he or she wins a race or doesn't win? And could the answer to that question affect the future of the sport? It's all straight ahead on this edition of In the Gate. They're in the gates. They're about to move in. They roll side. And they're off. As they move to the top of the stretch, it's a hip-hopping finish. This is In The Gate, ESPN's Thoroughbred Racing Podcast. My name is Barry Abrams. You can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. You can also get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well. Get us at the iTunes Store or TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app or wherever you get your podcasts. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. In 2010, trainer Nick Zito sent out Kentucky Derby runner-up Icebox in the Belmont Stakes. After having won the Florida Derby, Icebox went off as the 3-to-1 favorite in the test of the champion. But he finished ninth. After the race, Zito said that Icebox had flipped his palate, which caused his dull finish. So what does that mean? Take the tip of your tongue and tickle the back of your mouth. Make sure to keep that soft tissue back there soft. Don't stiffen your throat. Okay? That soft tissue you're feeling with your tongue is your soft palate. With racehorses, that soft palate can flip up and sit on top of the epiglottis. The epiglottis is the little flap of skin at the back of your throat that makes sure you don't swallow food down your windpipe or breathe into your stomach instead of your lungs. So... When the soft palate sits on that epiglottis, the airway is partially obstructed, and the horse isn't getting all the fuel it needs. Now, typically, the cure for a flipped palate is a minor surgical procedure to lift the palate so it doesn't flip up. It sounds relatively simple, and in theory, the horse should return to form thereafter. But in the case of Icebox, after that throat surgery, he finished off the board in the Haskell Travers, and the Monmouth Cup. In fact, Icebox never won another race and finished in the top three in one allowance race over the next year and a half. His final start was an 11th in the 2011 Breeders' Cup Classic. So here's the question. Is there a little more to it when a horse flips its palate? It seems that some researchers at Cornell University have been investigating that very question. And one of those investigators, Dr. Norm Ducharme, joins us here on In the Gate with some surprising results. Alternate. And one of those investigators, Dr. Jonathan Cheatham, joins us here on In the Gate with some surprising results. Alternate. And one of those investigators, Dr. Marta Cerconi, joins us here on In the Gate with some surprising results. Your colleagues and you have spent a great deal of time researching what causes the soft palate to be displaced. What have you found? So we found that in the earlier, maybe historically, we used to think that it was always the palate's fault, that something was wrong with the palate itself and has led to a lot of treatment targeting the palate. But we found that it's the position of the larynx or voice box that stabilizes the upper airway in horses that exercise. And this is 
specific to racehorses or horses that do more than just trotting. Any horse that gallop and race, although our study was focused on racehorses. And we found that one specific muscle, and there could be others as well, there's just one that there's more studies on fatigues a few seconds before the horse displaces his palate. His upper airway become loose, uh, quote unquote, and then the palate displaces. The racehorse uh, in his second career often can become a sport horse and be in the same breed. So, But if you relate it to other functions, the complaint in many of the sport horses on a horse that displacing his palate is the abnormal noise. So the displacement of palate causes an obstruction to the airflow, but unless the horse needs maximum airflow capacity, the obstruction does not interfere or is unlikely to interfere with the performance of the horse. But the horse, the second thing that a pal displacement does in the vast majority of horses is it creates an abnormal upper respiratory noise, often uh, referred to as snoring or gurgling. Really, it's the same structure that people that snore have vibration of the palate, and horses that displace the palate have vibration of the palate as well. And this abnormal noise affects the perception of judge, rider, and and the sport horse world. Can you please explain what the common surgical procedure is? How does the palate get lifted up? It's the airflow during exhalation that lifts the palate and cause an obstruction during exhalation as opposed to most other obstruction in the horses anyway, which happens during inhalation. So during exhalation, once the voice box is below the palate, the palate is like a sail or a spinnaker in an airflow get caught in the airflow and lifts it up and vibrates. Just like you and I, if we were snoring, it'd be... That's probably the proper metaphor, except it happens while racing or galloping in horses. Now, if the issue is muscle fatigue in the soft palate, is that indicative of general muscle fatigue in the horse? In other words, is the horse just destined not to run that fast? Uh, No, there it's and the muscle fatigues in the muscles that control the position of the voice box. We don't know that the soft palate actually fatigues. The soft palate may be a, an innocent bystander in that area, or the soft palate's natural strength and fatigue uh, may not be able to prevent displacement when it's in, in a non-physiological position, meaning it's sticking stuck in the airflow in the middle of the airflow. But to come back to the fatigue, so so we've, in this paper here that we're referring, we've discovered that muscle fatigue is the likely cause of displacement in most horses, racehorses, that is. But the, the your first, I'll answer your question in two phases. The first question is, is the muscle, the horse just fatigued? And this is just one of many muscles that are fatigued. And, and the answer is no. This seems to be specific to the muscle that controls the upper airways, not the entire horse. There's different type of muscle 
there are respiratory muscles which are meant to function all the time, and there's muscles that are used uh, when the horses are galloping, the skeletal muscle. And the training of horses is focused on training them to be able to compete athletically, really focusing on their cardiovascular fitness as well as their skeletal muscle fitness. But we're not sure that the upper airway current training method are optimized for the upper airways of horses. And they might not be optimized for this group of horses that are predisposed to it because they have the wrong muscle fiber composition, marathon versus sprinter, for example. Can you just describe that a little bit more definitively? Yeah, so the edge of the spectrum, it is well known that people that do marathon have different muscle fiber type than sprinter. One is more fatigue resistant than marathon, and one is more power and speed for a short period of time. So those are the extremes. Now, most horses compete, you know, in a short period of time that would be considered close to sprinting and, you know, within two minutes range, some activity and longer, like steeplechase or a lot of longer than that, or are longer than that. But they're for a short period of very strong exercise intensity, closer to the sprinter range. And the fiber type distribution for the upper airway to support that activity may not be optimized in certain horses by their either because of their breeding or because of combination of breeding and environmental training that they undergo. So what can you do for that? Like, how can you tell which horses are which, which have the fast twitch muscle fibers that get more tired and which have the slow twitch that don't? Yeah, so the other studies that are coming in that area are that we're working on have, have confirmed the fiber type uh, differences between horses that are affected with displacement and horses that are unaffected uh, with displacement. We've been able to manipulate, this is not published yet, but we're coming shortly, the fiber type distribution by electrical stimulation. So we can rehabilitate a muscle to its uh, proper uh, function or desire function in this activity, let's say racing or sport horse comp- competition. And it, it appears to be the frequency of the daily activation of the muscle. For example, if you activate a muscle for 20 minutes each day, or let's say 3% of the daily, uh, of its daily function is activated, you have a different proportion of fiber type. You have more the fast twitch, powerful muscle that are being stimulated. As if you do endurance, quote unquote, training, where the horses are exercised for a longer period of time, so daily activation, but at a lower intensity, you can change the fatigue resistance of a given muscle. And so, so that's where we think the answer, the final answer will be. At this point, the answer is surgical to try to 
there's some training aids too, but try to surgically replace the function of a muscle. But really the target, the physiological target would be to make the physiological response of the horse upper airway at exercise be appropriate without any surgical aids by doing it by rehabilitating the muscle by training. Electrical uh, stimulation pacemaker can achieve that. This to us is more to understand what is needed and say, okay, now we need to activate this muscle by so much percentage a day. So now we know that from the electrical data. Now we have to design a uh, exercise protocol and test it and validate it to see if it could change uh, and, and uh, give us the answer we want in terms of upper airway stability. We're chatting here on In the Gate with Dr. Norm Ducharme of the Cornell University College of Veterinary Medicine. I read about another reason that a horse's airway can become obstructed. It's called laryngeal hemiplegia. It's where cartilage in the windpipe becomes paralyzed and partially obstructs the flow of air. How common is this? This uh, laryngeal hemiplegia problem, and a medical term is recurrent laryngeal neuropathy, is quite common. The uh, Probably in the neighborhood of, uh, vary, but the range is 2 and 5% of horses, a thoroughbred racehorse, are affected with this disease. If you look at the draft horse breed, it's probably closer to 50% that are affected by this disease. And unlike the soft palate, this laryngeal obstruction uh, happens during inhalation. So the horses have problem getting air into their lungs as opposed to the palate where the horses have problem getting the, their, the air out of the lungs. So what happens for laryngeal hemiplegia? So this one the nerve becomes damaged. So there are two nerves running on either side of the windpipe. And both of these nerves, for reasons we don't understand, start to die back. And as they die back, the muscle atrophy. And the muscle being atrophying that prevents the normal opening during inhalation to occur. And so the horse has problem getting air in during inhalation, and in both these conditions, the palate or the laryngeal hemiplegia, the lack of oxygen is an acute determinant of the horse's performance and can lead to injury because the horse could be exercising in a fatigue state. Well, that's the thing. I mean, you are undoubtedly aware of the scrutiny the horse racing community is facing this year. Now, most of the fatalities we hear about in racing are, as you indicated earlier, musculoskeletal in nature. But in your experience, what connection is there between horses who have suffered on-track racing and training fatalities and potential respiratory issues? It's actually a small number. Uh, Cornell uh, University receives or performs post-mortem exam on uh, horses that euthanize on the track for whatever reason. And we get to look at their airways as well as the musculoskeletal system. And it's a very small percentage of horses uh, that have this uh, as an airway problem and have had an orthopedic problem. It's slow. But the airway problem is so 
obvious that it interferes with the performance of horses that almost all trainer and veterinarian would seek some kind of remedy for it rather than continue pushing a horse through that. You know, with, with no oxygen, these horses can't run well at all. Of course. So, I mean, in the bigger picture, what role does this research of your team play in the greater effort to increase equine safety and well-being? Well, it's a welfare issue that we need to understand problem and come up with remedies that are more natural or more physiological to allow the horses to be able to have proper oxygen and and at least his cardiovascular and pulmonary system are able to deliver oxygen to the muscle that these horses have. And so, and both of these diseases, we're, we've been looking for physiological solution to, to resolve the problem. But the upper airway feel has made a lot of advantages, uh, or a lot of advances, I should say, because we can examine the upper airway of horses at exercise with a scope. So we could see during the training phase what is really happening to the upper airway. And then once you got the diagnosis, then we've been focusing on finding the cause so we can find more physiological response, whether it's to train the horse with a palate problem or to transplant a nerve to fix a horse that has a denervation problem to his larynx. But it, yeah, it is a, it is a large problem to the industry. And quite a few of us are trying to figure an overall health program nationally that would allow proper pre-screening of horses to identify not horses that have uh, fractures, but before that, horses that have underlying bone changes for whatever reason, whether it's training-related or breeding-related or ground-related or restory-related, and try to make the proper adaptation and changes to reposition the horses in the right axis so they can uh, compete successfully and, more importantly, safely. Dr. Norm Ducharme is part of the team at Cornell University's College of Veterinary Medicine that's been researching this breathing issue. Thank you so much for sharing the results of this study with us. Thank you, and thanks for your interest. We're going to take a short break here on In the Gate, but when we come back, does a horse know whether it's won or lost a race? And what impact could that answer have on the very future of the sport? Don't go away. Welcome back to the In the Gate podcast. We've all heard these kinds of phrases to describe horses. He had a nose for the wire. She wouldn't be denied. That horse has so much heart. But do horses really know if they win or lose a race? We ascribe our human traits and characteristics to race horses. That is called anthropomorphism, a term first used by Greek philosopher Xenophanes at around 500 years before the Common Era. The area of our brain that tries to understand what other people are doing is the same part of the brain used to understand the behavior of other animals. If you're an owner and or a fan, and you think lovingly of the nobility of your horses in their pursuit of victory, we're not trying to kill your buzz, though that may happen anyway. 
but we do want to give you some realistic perspective on what may really be going on inside these horses' heads as they race. So to do that, we welcome here to win the gate Dr. Sue McDonnell of the New Bolton Center of the University of Pennsylvania College of Veterinary Medicine. She is a certified animal behaviorist. So let's start with the most basic question involving horses: Why do horses run? Well, living under their own、um, social organization, so what we say like wild horses or free-running horses, they run mostly to escape danger. So out of fear, especially at speeds like a horse would run in a race. Another circumstance is when they are、uh, competing for highly prized limited resource. Usually in wild horses, that's among males competing for a female. So that's pretty much what adult horses do in terms of running. Now there's a lot of Play behavior in horses. In fact, horses are the spokesmodels for play behavior among mammals. When when you take a biology course and they discuss play, youngsters do a lot of running play, and it's it's clearly play. They individually will seem to be running back and forth between two objects or running away from the family until the the stallion notices that they're too far away and goes and gets them, just like toddlers. You know, to play that game of running away from their parents. There's a lot of running, play running in youngsters. But once they mature, it's pretty much just those two things that I mentioned. Running away from adults often applies to teenagers too. I don't know if it does in horses. <laughs> Did I say that? I'm sorry. So, how do horses <laughs> interpret racing each other versus how do humans interpret horses racing each other? Well, I think、um, it's a pretty Tough question to answer scientifically, and so if you talk to people who have thought about this, who have also trained horses and been a jockey themselves, and they've known their horses as they went through training, they they describe that initially the horse is following the direction of the rider. And doesn't seem to have a concept of what the goal is, but as they start to work out on the track beside other horses, that a small percentage of those horses actually do give the trainer and the jockey the impression that they get it. They know that they are to be out ahead of the other horses, and they they call them the really good horses who get it. And so that even though they're when they turn the corner. To come down this straightaway, they signal the horse that it's time to go, and and until that point, they've been trying to keep them relaxed and and、uh, not wasting energy. But when they give them the go signal, that those horses seem to, on their own initiative, try to get to the front. What else can we learn from their body language? Since they don't speak our language, what can we learn about their states of mind when chasing or running against each other? So I've watched a lot of these horses that are free running, and and these competitions for limited resource, and it's very clear there. You could just show me、uh, some footage of the a few seconds after the end of a bout of running, chasing one another. And I could tell by their body language which one was out ahead at the end because they actually kind of strut and 
posture and the the, the winner in this case, the one who who got to the resource or seems to be ahead of the game, and the other one will look somewhat dejected <laughs> if that's a so in that instance I could say, but of course when a horse has a rider and they're you know they're trying to ease them up after the race, they're taking the direction from the handler or from the the rider, and they also are probably a lot more exhausted in a race competition that we give them than they would on their own in these ongoing battles for a female or or whatever. Now, horses don't look like humans or have too many traits similar to humans, but we nonetheless anthropomorphize. Why do we not assign human qualities to every single non-human object we find? We're selective. <laughs> now, that, that's a, a very deep philosophical question. <laughs> I don't know the answer to that. I think some people do. I mean, I, I think some people can see personalities in inanimate objects, plants, or uh, their car. <laughs> At least they speak in those terms sometimes. Well, some people have some really expensive houses, the ones who made the pet rock phenomenon happen, so I, <laughs> I get that. Our guest is Dr. Sue McDonald of the New Bolton Center at the University of Pennsylvania's College of Veterinary Medicine. That's a lot to say. Has there ever been a study monitoring hormone levels post-race for horses that win versus horses that finish anywhere other than first in a race? Well, that is a very good question because in people, I'm sure you've seen that it's uh, if you win a race or if you win a chess match, for men, male hormones rise in response to winning and they drop in response to losing. And that's been looked at in primates, also a very, very similar pattern to what happens in people. I don't believe it has been done in the horse. We've done some work in terms of those stallions who become a harem stallion versus a non-harem stallion in a, in a free-running herd. Meaning what? Well, the harem stallions are the ones who have control one or more mares year-round. They stay with those mares, protect them, and they get breeding rights to those mares. And they keep the other males at bay so that they are not bred by the other males. And that's called a harem stallion. And then the other, the stallions in the herd who don't have a group of mares or a family, let's call it, are what are known as bachelors. And they just hang out with other males and they're sort of like the army for the herd so that if there was a threat to the herd, they would be the first ones to approach. But they don't have their own females. They occasionally get to breed a young filly who's in transition between her birth family and moving on to form a harem, but they don't have their own family. I guess we could call the harem stallions Charlie Sheen. I guess that would make some sense. <laughs> but I will tell you, I've often thought that if I was going to train and race a horse, I would actually have a filly or a, a mare be the prize. <laughs> and uh, it'd be hard to organize that, but I think the horse would know that he won, that he got the prize. <laughs> oh, my gosh. There are so many implications to that. I'm not even going to touch it. But what about, in the interest of fairness, the idea that winning raises male hormone levels? What about female horses? 
I don't know anything about winning effects on endocrinology of winning in females. And in horses, females usually don't compete against any other horse in a, in a natural. And I, I, I keep going back to that because we know horses have retained so much of their innate behavior that uh, whenever these questions come up, I tend to go back to uh, how did this horse evolve and how how would we translate their natural behavior into what we do with them in competition? And there are so many female horses that have a lot of fight in them. Personal Ensign, Zenyatta, just to name a couple. Personal Ensign would not let the others win the Breeders' Cup Distaff. She finished her career undefeated. How can we judge then how competitive females are based on the natural way of horses versus racing? Yeah, you're right. <laughs> how how do we do that? And uh, these questions, we really should get a group of behavioral scientists who who work with horses and know horses to uh, sit down and see if there isn't some way, some clever way we could devise to uh, do experiments to answer these questions. They used to be just a fun curiosity for a cocktail party conversation, but I think it's becoming more and more important that we understand why these horses do what they do for us. What about what you would call aggressive behaviors? You'll see a horse bite a trainer or try to bite another horse in a race. I mean, horses will pin their ears back. Those are aggressive behaviors. What's behind those kinds of behaviors if not trying to show dominance? Well, you might remember the famous uh, photograph of a horse a couple decades ago that the photograph was published under the title The Savage. Do you know that one? Where the horse reaches over to bite the other horse. And so that can happen just when you're walking horses up and down a shed row. They're uncomfortable being near the other horse. And it's usually what looks like displaced aggression rather than like they're frustrated, they're scared, they don't, and they just lash out. It's very hard to tell when you see it in a race what exactly it was recently one that reached out and got the arm of the of another jockey, and uh, to me, looking at that, it looked very much like um, it just didn't really want to be near that horse, and it it didn't it wasn't going after the jockey per se. It was just lashing out, and the jockey was there. So here's the reason I wanted to bring you on. As you probably know, the general public's attitude toward horse racing is changing particularly given the safety issues the sport has seen this year, if we're establishing sort of, kind of, that horses don't really care or even know whether they win or lose a race, what does that say about the very foundation, the underpinnings of the entire horse racing industry? Boy, you come up with the tough questions. <laughs> I think it is a question that uh, will will be asked, and horsemen are in some circles uh, thinking about these these questions. And you're right. Everyone who has horses who compete with them uh, dry, you know, you have to think about like, is this horse really enjoying this? <laughs> and uh, I think we all. You know, just like we have a dog and we have, we keep a dog in the house or we take it for rides in the car, whatever. We don't really know how, I mean, in, in the case of dogs, it seems like they're very eager to do those things and be around people. But a very basic question is, you know, do horses have 
any enjoyment with people. We and going back to your your comment about anthropomorphism, we really think they enjoy um, those of us who have animals. And uh, but that question needs to be answered by people at a much higher pay grade than me. <laughs> On the other hand, let's end with something a little positive here. What does ascribing human qualities to an animal mean in terms of the amount of care that animal receives? So I, I think that's a really important, another could be an all-day discussion, but it certainly seems that in most cases, if you attribute human characteristics to the animal and you you like those characteristics, I mean, they're positive, then you're going to do your best for that animal that you can under the circumstances. You're going to give it the best care. Now, I I do mostly behavior work, and in that line of work, you will run into situations where because people see these animals as human, having human characteristics, they often do things for them that would be good for humans, but it's not good for horses. So they overdo things, they overfeed them, they overblanket them, they do things that are really actually in some cases quite stressful for the horses. And they think it's they're doing the best, but um, there's there's two sides to to wanting to do the best if you don't know what is best for an animal. I wish you'd have told my mother that when I was younger. Put on a sweater, I'm cold. <laughs> Dr. Sue McDonald is a certified animal behaviorist at the New Bolton Center of the University of Pennsylvania. Thank you so much for a few minutes. You're welcome. Our thanks once again to Drs. Sue McDonald and Norm Ducharme. Inertia is the tendency to do nothing, remain unchanged, a word to describe the thoroughbred industry. That is, until the saber-rattling began early this year and continued so the business couldn't flee. Now change has come to California, including the racing board, whose personnel is quickly being replaced. The new chair says that medication may be gone in 18 months. Will the governor's blessing thereafter be vouchsafed? Across the country in Kentucky, Lasix might be on the way out for two-year-olds next year and then for stakes. And several major racing jurisdictions have banned together for the sake of safety. Will that be what it takes? It's awful that it's taken until the precipice of extinction for any meaningful action to occur, but yet it is now happening in several racing states. Is there enough time before it's all over? You can get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well. Get us at the iTunes Store or TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app or wherever you get your podcasts. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. And you can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. That's In The Gate for this week. I'm Barry Abrams. We'll see you next time.